Welcome. You are listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's always better to hear it live, this is a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. Enjoy our latest installment. Shabbat Shalom. At the soul of this week's Torah reading sits a question, ancient and still actively debated, a question whose answer, I believe, is the key to understanding not only the biblical story of Joseph, but the story of our own lives, a question whose formulation simply stated as it is belies a complexity verging on the insoluble, the question of why didn't Joseph write home? The basic outline of the story is familiar to most of us. Joseph was a firstborn child to Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. Rachel died shortly thereafter, giving birth to Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin. Jacob favored Joseph over his brothers, perhaps seeing the presence of his late wife in the countenance of his handsome son. Joseph's technicolor dream coat was undoubtedly but one of Jacob's many acts of paternal favoritism, which together with Joseph's tail-bearing and self-aggrandizing dreams wrought the ire of the brothers. In last week's Torah reading, as fraternal tensions reached a boiling point, Jacob sent the 17-year-old Joseph to find his brothers, who upon seeing Joseph approach, first conspired to throw him into a pit and then to sell him to a caravan of traders en route to Egypt. Famously, the brothers cover up their misdeed by showing their father a blood-stained coat of many colors, explaining that poor, poor Joseph had been devoured by wild beasts. As for Joseph, he became a servant in Potiphar's house, but is falsely accused of misconduct and sentenced to rot in an Egyptian prison. And while I'm skipping a few details, some 13 years later in this week's Torah reading, Joseph is brought to stand before Pharaoh to interpret his dreams, becoming the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Joseph leads Egypt through the seven years of plenty. He prepares them for the years of famine an abundance which we know eventually prompts his brothers to descend to Egypt in search of sustenance. The Joseph story is, I believe, the most well-crafted narrative of the entire Torah. It provides an endless number of entry points and interpretive possibilities, and we're not even halfway through. But this year, the question to which I want to turn, the question that I have never addressed, is why didn't Joseph write home? Some two decades have passed since being sold into servitude, which, depending on how you count, nearly 10 of them have been spent in the upper echelons of the Egyptian royal court. Joseph saved his adopted country. He revamped the entire economy. He transformed Egypt into a geopolitical superpower, the producer and distributor of the very stuff upon which the world depended, and yet never, ever, not once did he pick up a phone, 
write a letter, send an emissary, an email, a text message to see how his old man in the old country was doing. I am, not surprisingly, not the first person to ask this question. It was stated most famously and forcefully by the 13th century Spanish commentator Nachmanides, who writes, how is it possible that he, Joseph, did not send a single letter to his father to inform him of his whereabouts and comfort him, as Egypt is only about a six-day journey from Hebron? Even if it were a year's journey, out of respect to his father, he should have notified him. Joseph had the time to do so. He had the power to do so discreetly or openly to see how his dad was doing, to let how his dad um, knew that he was fine. He could have done so, but he did not do so. So my question is why? And grateful as we are to Nachmanides for the clarity by which he poses a question, his answer fails to satisfy. According to Nachmanides, Joseph held fast to his intoxicating childhood dreams that one day his brothers and father would come to bow down to him. To reach out to his father prematurely, reasons Nachmanides, risked interfering with the realization of those dreams. Better to let destiny and the dreams play out and let everyone arrive in Egypt in due time. Slightly more satisfying is the less theologically minded thought that Joseph was still really angry at his brothers. He understandably harbored resentment against them and wanted them either to stew in their sin or repent for it. For Joseph to tell his father that he was alive, reasons Rabbi Aaron Greenberg would interfere with Joseph's plan to bring his brothers to repentance. No different than Andy Dufresne or Danny Ocean or Debbie Ocean, Joseph used his years in jail to plot his revenge, a plan which, for whatever reason, involved keeping the fact of his existence mum. The most straightforward reason why Joseph kept quiet was that life for Joseph in Egypt was awesome, if not just about perfect. The vizier to Pharaoh, the plenty of Egypt at his fingertips, married to the daughter of the high priest, and blessed with two upstanding and outstanding sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, the first set of biblical brothers who actually seemed to get along. Joseph's last memory in Canaan was hardly a pleasant one, a hurt that was understandably hard to let go. If Joseph was self-reflective to the point of acknowledging his part in incurring the ire of his brother's wrath, it was a shame that probably made him squirm. Sometimes you just got to turn a page, move on, and count your lucky stars that you landed on your feet. Why didn't Joseph write home? Look at where he is and look at where he came from. Why in the world would he write home? There's no shortage of answers as to why Joseph may not have written home. Maybe he was traumatized. Maybe he was ashamed. Maybe he was happy living large in Egypt. Maybe there was a plan, providential or otherwise, for him to fulfill. Maybe, as a young woman shared with me at a Thursday night young adult event, it was because boys don't call their fathers, they call their mothers, and Joseph didn't have a mother to call. There are probably as many answers to this question as there are people who have read our Torah reading. But when all is said and done, 
I think the most plausible explanation is that Joseph didn't write Jacob because in Joseph's mind, Jacob was responsible in part or in full for the fate that befell him years earlier. Think about it from Joseph's perspective. Joseph's last contact with his father was a directive to go seek out his brothers as they were pasturing in Shrem. Before Joseph knew what hit him, he had been thrown into a pit and sold into Egypt. Joseph was only as good as the information he had. The narrative he constructed was based on the facts in his possession, facts that could reasonably implicate his father Jacob in his demise. Not everything lined up neatly. In Joseph's eyes, Jacob's sin may have been one of omission, not commission. Joseph knew he was a favorite. It would have strained credulity for Joseph to believe that Jacob wanted him to suffer. But Joseph could have held his father responsible for how things turned out, for putting him in harm's way, for holding his peace as fraternal tensions bubbled over or for favoring him in the first place, so much so that the brothers hated him, so much that they wanted to do away with him. Had not Jacob learned anything from the misfires of his own upbringing? Given Jacob's background, Joseph must have wondered how his father could have been so obtuse when it came to his own parenting. Trying to understand why Joseph didn't write home, it's not the facts of the case that matter nor what Jacob's intent actually was. All that matters is how Joseph perceived what had happened to him. Thirteen long years, Joseph sat stewing in the jail, playing the scene over and over and over again in his mind. How could his father have been so cavalier with him? Had he not himself learned the lessons of his childhood? As a reader of the text, As a son to a father and a father to a son, I understand it. Committed as we are not to commit the same missteps with our own children as our parents did with us, sometimes we do exactly just that, saddling our children with the very burdens that we swore we never would. Consider the names that Joseph chooses for his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. The first means God has caused me to forget the hardship of my father's house. And the second, an expression of gratitude for having been made fruitful in the land of his sojourn. It's a stunning thought, if you pause to think about it, that for Joseph, fathering children of his own was the emotional antidote for the parenting missteps of his own father. It helps explain why Joseph's relationship to Pharaoh is described in paternal language a substitute relationship for the father-son relationship Joseph didn't have with his biological father. We miss the point entirely if we read the Joseph story to be about sibling rivalry and reconciliation. This is a tale about fathers and sons. Why didn't Joseph write his father to tell him he was alive, to check in how his old man was doing? Because in the prison of Joseph's mind, It was Jacob who was responsible for all that befell him when he was a lad of just 17 years old. And it is through this lens of fathers and sons that the rest of the Joseph story snaps into place. Count the number of times 
that the brothers in this week's Torah reading self-identify as the sons of one man and consider how those words must have been received by Joseph. It's why Joseph, identity still hidden, receives his brothers for a second time and his first inquiry is about the well-being of their shared father. And what's true for Joseph regarding his father is true for Jacob regarding the guilt he felt regarding the believed fate of his son. The biblical narrator pulls on these same father-son heartstrings in drawing out Jacob's refusal to let Benjamin go down to Egypt. How could he, knowing that Jacob understood himself to be responsible for Joseph's fate? Every aspect of the story is laden with meaning. Nothing is happenstance, right down to the caravan of goods that Jacob sends to accompany the brothers down to Egypt that mirrors the very goods accompanying Joseph when he was sold into servitude years before. Had not Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber already done so, I would stage this story with a split screen, Jacob on one side and Joseph on the other, father and son confronting, struggling, and eventually letting go of the feelings of guilt, of blame and resentment that had separated them all of these years. And while I do need to leave something to be said next week, this is precisely what actually does happen in the Torah readings to come. When Judah will stand before Joseph, offering his own life in place of Benjamin's, it's the paternal, not fraternal, bonds that are at play. Judah may have known or not known what he was doing, but just count the number of times Judah references their father Jacob as he hammers away at Joseph's frozen heart. It's only in Judah's speech that Joseph finally realized that his father had no knowledge of what actually happened, duped by his brothers into believing that he was eaten by a wild beast, a realization that unleashes Joseph's emotional catharsis. And as he tearfully reveals his identity to his brothers, his first words significantly are about his father's well-being. Ha'od avi chai, does my father still live? And when Jacob and Joseph do see each other, they weep on each other's necks as Jacob and Esau did years prior. One senses that there's more at play than just father and son here. Jacob himself is coming to terms with aspects of his identity that long preceded Joseph's arrival into the world. And then, in a few weeks' time and a few decades later, when Jacob lays on his deathbed and Joseph brings his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, for a blessing, only the hardest of heart would fail to be moved by the scene of Joseph watching his aged father bless the very sons who earlier in the narrative signaled the rupture of the generations. How it must have felt for Jacob, eyes dimmed at had been those of his father Isaac when Esau and he received their blessings to now bless his grandsons in the presence of Joseph. How it must have helped for Joseph to see his father bless his boys one generation to the next to the next. What was once broken with a passage of time with a blessing of hindsight and the gift of forgiveness repaired. Friends, our children 
are much smarter than we give them credit for. And we, their parents, are far less clever than we would have ourselves believe. And all of us are deeply and inescapably human, flawed, and in need of forgiveness. We are all imprisoned in the narratives that we have constructed for ourselves. None of us as aware as the other side of the story as we think ourselves to be. And the key to our freedom from our self-constructive prisons is as simple and as scary as being open to listening to another side of the story, different than the one we have told ourselves all these years. The story of Joseph teaches that while we are all extensions of that which came before, and we are all guilty of passing down burdens one generation to the next, we can, if we choose to do so, be bestower of blessings. We can bless our children, like Ephraim and like Manasseh, granting our children the gift of dreaming dreams to be fulfilled in their lifetimes and in the generations to come. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Hallelujah.